Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Okay, we're, uh, we've got to move on to the, the really the final segment here, which is how can or how could these vaccines possibly cause injury, okay? And I, I want to start with, first of all, talking to individuals who have been vaccine injured. And you know, again, briefly, unfortunately, uh, describe what you've gone through, not, not in great detail, but you know, how many of them, you know, in your groups, how many are you? I'm a previously healthy mother of two young kids and uh, a preschool teacher. My life before my vaccine was beautiful. Sorry, it's hard to remember the worst parts of my life. Um, unfortunately, I'm not alone. I participated in a clinical trial for AstraZeneca, and now I suffer from a severe debilitating form of neuropathy that will progress until I'm essentially left in a care home. I'm not alone in my struggle. Unfortunately, there are other clinical trial participants that are dealing with the same thing. There's Olivia Tessinar, who's a Moderna clinical trial participant, who now has severe and rare T-cell lymphoma. She's coded as moderate lymphadenopathy in the report. I'm not even in my report. Augusto Rue with Pfizer, severe um, and lasting neurocardiogenic side effects. He's coded as fully recovered. Maddie DeGarry, a 12-year-old, confined to a wheelchair, feeding tube, coded as a stomach ache. This progressed on to the public rollout. One in three reports in VAERS. We don't know what's happening to these reports. Where are these people? We found over 20,000 COVID vaccine injured in just a short year, with Joel and I founding an organization that's dedicated to advocating for the healing of these people who are suffering. The NIH knows they flew us out, they researched us. They also help people with secret protocols that the public still does not know about. I know because I was one of those people that was given those protocols that Joel and I now use daily to help prevent severe disease from happening to people who are newly injured. The FDA also knows all of this. And when we've talked to them about these secrets, the response that we got was, there are no secrets here. There is one word that summarizes what's happening to the COVID vaccine injured. There is one word to describe us, and it is ghost. But there is one very important message I would like to selfishly share for the injured. I want them to know that the fight is just now heating up, and please stay with us. Do not give the drug companies one more ounce or one more minute of your life than they already have taken. If you do that, they win. Thank you. Dr. Joel Walsh. Let me just quick introduce uh, Dr. Walsh. He's an orthopedic surgeon from Mequon, Wisconsin. He grew up in the Milwaukee area. He attended Marquette University for his undergraduate education. He then obtained his medical degree at the University of Wisconsin. He completed his orthopedic surgery residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin. So Dr. Walsh. Thank you, Senator Johnson. 
Prior to 2021, I was an orthopedic surgeon specializing in joint replacement with a large successful practice. I averaged 6,000 patient visits per year and performed in the area of 800 surgical procedures per year. I had a passion for my job and was dedicated to my patients. I received my one and only Moderna injection on December 30th of 2022. Within one week after my Moderna shot, I began to have numbness and weakness in my legs. This was quickly followed by balance problems and back pain. I remember vividly the day when I was in an exam room and was physically unable to rise from a seated position while talking to a patient. I pushed myself, pushed myself up to an upright position, my legs failed me, and I fell. Knowing how to manipulate the healthcare system, I quickly received the diagnosis of transverse myelitis. This involves an injury to my thoracic spinal cord. I also had an extensive workup to rule out other sources of my condition besides the Moderna shot. No other source could be found. I am now permanently disabled. While my permanent disability has been professionally devastating, devastating I am passionate about, passionate about turning my negative reaction into positive action. I am now co-chair of REACT 19, which is a nonprofit, science-based, non-political organization that is focused on giving the COVID-19 vaccine-injured hope and support. This advocacy organization unfortunately represents over 20,000 COVID-19 vaccine-injured people here in the United States. We have a CARE fund which provides financial grants to injured people for uncovered medical expenses. We are developing a medical provider and mental health provider network cons consisting of what we call as vaccine-injured-friendly providers. We have social media-based support groups. We also have created an advocacy network where newly diagnosed individuals that are injured can be assigned a nurse or social worker to assist them. In essence, we are providing the care that the federal agencies, the healthcare organizations, and their medical providers should be doing. Let me be clear for those that are you, for those, excuse me, that, of you that are considering a COVID shot. If you have an adverse event after your shot, you are on your own. If you are a parent considering a shot for your child and they have an adverse event, you and your child are on your own. If you can't work, your employer like mine may abandon you. There is little to no financial recourse for you. There is no one to sue. You will likely not be able to find a provider who recognizes and treats COVID-19 vaccine injuries, what they are, how to diagnose you, how to treat you, more importantly. Over 90% of us in the injured, in our organization are gaslit originally by their providers. Most are unfortunately diagnosed with a primary psychiatric disorder. There are providers that are knowledgeable about COVID-19 vaccine injuries like the ones with me here today. However, these people represent far less than 1% of the providers here in the United States. You may be shunned by family and friends because you are the objective evidence that the vaccine has real complications. 
You are the vaccine's dirty little secret. After your adver adverse event, you will likely decide not to vaccinate your children with the COVID shot. And ironically, you'll be called an anti-vaxxer. I urge you to demand informed consent when considering COVID-19 vaccination. That includes understanding the risks, benefits, and options of the shot. Demand this from your provider. If they use the simple term, quote, safe and effective, I urge you to run, not walk, and find a new provider and educate yourself about the significant risks, limited benefits, and alternatives of the COVID shots. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, I want to thank uh, Senator and Dr. Roger Marshall, who has come here, and he, understanding how short we are in time, uh, would like to take a couple minutes and, and uh, address the, the audience here. Dr. Marshall. Well, thank you, Senator Johnson. You know, leadership is, is uh, doing the right thing when it's not popular. And we appreciate your leadership and the people in this room that are feeling the pressure from our, whether it's the AMA or our own colleges, we're all feeling that same pressure. The state medical societies, and certainly that's a pressure that I feel as well. It seems like since the first time I heard COVID, everything I was taught in medical school was thrown out the window. That we would no longer talk about the risk and benefits of a treatment. I can't think of any new treatment that ever came through my office that, that there weren't some risks to it. And certainly we would, we would t talk about the benefits as well. And there's never been a time in our careers otherwise where if we disagree with the, 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 a certain mantra that we couldn't have that debate. And certainly in this case, a, uh, a, a significant amount, definitely a minority, but yet a significant number of people in this area feel uh, have concerns about the benefits and the risk profile of, of vaccines. I've read many of your books. I've read many of your articles here, the people in this room before. And as I put all these pieces together, Ron, it's like, so what? So what do you and I do with this going forward? And I think in many instances, in retrospect, I wonder, what did they know, they meeting the CDC and IAID, what did they know, when did they know it, and how did they use that to inform the American public? And a lot of the information you all are talking about today was pretty intuitive. Based upon our past experiences, based upon the science we knew, I think we could have predicted that there'd be some downsides to this vaccine. And early on, the American public was misled. And that's where the injustice is to me. Dr. Malone, I got a question for you here in just a second. So as I think about it, if you're, you know, the, Dr. Fauci, you're leading this country, there is an epidemic that would soon kill an, a million Americans. The advice that you would be given to the American public. And just intuitively, when we talk, first of all, about um, natural immunity, Intuitively, you would think natural immunity would have some significance. You, you look at this, this is the COVID virus, uh, three-dimensional. It's got multiple little spikes on it, uh, multiple curves. You think about your own body building an antibody to this whole mechanism, that that would probably have a longer lasting impact than a vaccine that was made just to this spike, right? So would you advise the president, whoever, 
that um, that natural immunity would have no would have little impact on this. And the next piece I would ask about, based upon what I know about the mRNA vaccines, it was probably developed more, maybe think of military, that we would inject some people in a special place with uh, some very intricate bugs there, and it would probably be short-term immunity. But we were told if you take the vaccine, you're cured. You'll stop transmitting it. That's what the American, when these people, these reporters up here, that's what they were told by the CDC. They're not doing, saying that to be misleading the public. That's what they were led to believe. So, so Dr. Malone, based upon your science that you knew in February, March of 2020, would you have downplayed uh, natural immunity? Would you have promised long-lasting immunity from the mRNA vaccine? Uh, I guarantee I would not have promised things that I did not have data for. I would not have substituted hope for data. I would not have uh, deployed um, a, an amazingly powerful uh, and highly coordinated propaganda campaign to compel Americans to accept an unlicensed product on the basis of hope. And I refer, of course, to the quotes from both Deborah Burks and from Rochelle Walensky. Um, this is not acceptable, in my opinion, in terms of a basis for public policy. Uh, my, I, I, as you may recall, my story in this outbreak was um, being contacted by a current or former CIA officer on January 4th of 2020 and warned about the risk of the virus. And as I have done with multiple prior outbreaks, I generated a risk assessment. On the basis of that risk assessment, I advised that we proceed with um, focusing on repurposed drugs. Um, I worked with colleagues at Defense Threat Reduction Agency, Kin Biodefense, to identify funding and capture funding for uh, identification and testing of repurposed drugs. And that the reason for that was the long timeline required to produce and demonstrate the safety and effectiveness of a vaccine product. Um, so that's that I, I, I know I can say this is what I would have done because I wrote it and I implemented it. So, 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 so I hate to be rude. Listen, I, I truly appreciate you coming here, Roger. I really do. I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I, I hope maybe I found an ally here. It's been, it has been kind of a lonely road. Um, I, I appreciate your open mind. I appreciate what you've already done in terms of studying. I think everybody in this room, everybody in the audience appreciates that as well. So thank you very much for coming, okay? So now, unfortunately, we have this room for a limited time period, so I want to move on to the next um, segment here, really talking about, you know, what clinicians are seeing and then an, a possible explanation for it. And I'll, we'll start with the, uh, Dr. Kurt Mahona. I will ask uh, Dr. Moon to come up to the table as well, and Dr. Thorpe. Um, but Dr. Kurt Malone received his Bachelor of Arts degree with a double major in Biology and Chemistry from... Uh, Point Loma Nazarene University and his PhD in Cardiovascular Physiology and Pharmacology from University of California in San Diego. He received his MB from Jefferson Medical College, Mandy Cum Laude and AOA, and finished his medical training in pediatric cardiology at US uh, San Diego uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, I've asked these doctors to, again, just anecdotally uh, put some meat in the bones of what we heard earlier, just in terms of the, the safety signals that the data was telling us. So, Dr. Malone. 
Thank you much. Thank you very much, Senator Johnson. I appreciate being here. It's quite an honor. Uh, so we know from Dr. Rich's data that the risk for children with COVID is exceedingly low. But we now know that there's a real risk from vaccine-induced myocarditis. So let me start with the explanation of what myocarditis is. The word is a combination of muscle, heart, and inflamed. The heart is primarily a muscle. And when it is inflamed, it functions, its function is compromised. Much like when you bruise or strain a muscle, when you strain a leg muscle, your doctor tells you to rest it. The difficulty when the heart has been injured, even if it's minor, it is very difficult to rest it because it still needs to beat 70 times a minute, 4,200 times an hour, and 100,800 times a day. The concentration of my PhD dissertation in cardiovascular physiology and pharmacology was the area of study specifically looking at the cellular mechanisms for the heart muscle to become inflamed. So can the vaccine cause myocarditis or inflame the heart? We now have data from multiple sources. The American Heart Association meetings this year from Dr. Lin, Dr. Wang writing for Cell Research, Dr. Avolio in clinical research all have elegantly shown that the spike protein, which the current mRNA vaccine products ask the body to make, are cardiotoxic and cause the heart to be inflamed. Let that sink in. The current public health plan is asking our own body to make a cardiotoxin. The spike protein sets in motion a cascade of events that activates platelets to form clots and inflames the blood vessels lining the heart and the heart muscle itself. So how often does this happen? That answer comes with many caveats because the risk is very much associated with age and gender. Men 14 to 40 being at the highest risk. But most alarming was a recent study from Thailand that watched and tested adolescents before and after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. They found that two, uh, of the 202 adolescent boys that they were studied, five of 202, or 2.4%, demonstrated myocardial image, uh, sorry, injury. And two of the 202, had a 1% or 1% had irritation of, of the sac around the heart or pericarditis. One in 40 people having their heart inflamed after vaccination is very concerning, especially considering the majority, close to 80% 80, 80 of those serving in our military are males between the age of 18 and 44. You may have heard that the unvaccinated are at higher risk for myocarditis than those who are vaccinated. A large study from the Nordic countries found that not to be true. The paper in JAMA Cardiology by Dr. Lejeune and all showed that the highest risk for myocarditis was in those vaccinated males, 12 to 39. Two shots were worse than one. Moderna was worse than Pfizer and the Pfizer-Moderna combination was the highest risk of all. What about college students? The recent paper by Hogue and all used CDC estimates to show how many students would be saved from hospitalization from COVID by vaccination compared to studies showing the real risk for myocarditis. What they showed was for a million students going to college that the Pfizer vaccine would save 32 
from going to the hospital. The Moderna vaccine would save 23. If you looked at myocarditis, it, the amount of myocarditis you would see by the CDC estimate was 47 for Pfizer and 70 for Moderna. Other studies have showed Pfizer to cause 126 cases of myocarditis per million, and another one by Sharif et al. showed 147, compared to a saving of going to the hospital of 32%. Many of the health of public officials have, have agreed that the vaccines are causing myocarditis, but it's mild. Having spent time with thousands of patients explaining their child's heart pro problem, if your child has to be hospitalized in the ICU with myocarditis, even if I call it a mild case, no parent ever thinks that their child being in a pediatric ICU is mild. Um, so what can we say about the recovery from the effect of the vaccine associated with the spike protein's cardiotoxins long-term effect on the heart? That st a study was recently published in Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. The, it says the outcomes of at least 90 days since the onset of myocarditis after mRNA COVID vaccination in adolescents and young adults in the USA. And what they found was pretty alarming. What they showed was that if they looked at the echocardiogram and EKG, that those all went back pretty close to baseline in the majority of patients. And that's what you'll often hear. Oh, the EKG was normal. Oh, the echocardiogram was normal. Or the blood test to see if the heart was inflamed, the troponin, it's all back to normal. However, if they dug a little deeper, what they saw was that the, if they looked with a cardiac MRI, one of our most sensitive tests to look for damage to the heart, they saw that in 151 kids who had an M MRI, at 90 days, 81 of them still had damage to their heart, and the damage was of late gadolinium enhancement, which is associated with sudden cardiac death. Um, I am passionate for the health of our children. I'm also passionate for young service members that I served for 13 years in the Air Force as a flight surgeon deployed twice to Iraq. For our healthy children and the majority of our war, war fighters, the data show that the risk for myocarditis is greater than the benefit of the vaccine products. As a physician who is bound to do no harm, my opinion is that we should not mandate harm. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Milhon. Again, We've got this room for just a set period. Uh, I, I do want to go to some doctors with just some anecdotal clinical evidence, okay? And I want to keep that brief because I do want to have time to at least theorize about what, how the vaccine could cause what you're seeing. So I'd like to go to Dr. Renata Moon, who's a board-certified pediatrician. She graduated from Washington University in St. Louis with degrees in biochemistry and medicine has actually practiced clinical pediatrics for over 20 years. In her role as cl clinical associate professor of medicine, Dr. Moon has taught countless medical students and residents in medical education programs. Again, Dr. Moon, if you could talk about what you're seeing clinically now versus prior to the vaccine. Yes, thank you, Senator. I saw probably two or three cases of myocarditis prior to 2021 in my entire career. I've practiced for over 20 years, very experienced, lots of, lots of inpatient care as well as clinic work. What I'm seeing now, and so what I've seen and what I directly know about cases of myocarditis, they've gone very high, it's been very high. There's clearly been a massive increase. 
I would like to, um, if it's okay to show the package. No, you, you've got the props, yeah. So yeah, thank you. I show have the audience uh, what, I, I what a standard package is. Yeah, this is the package insert that Dr. Gortler was referring to. And I, I do think it's important to show. So I've been an advocate of vaccines for my entire career. Um, typically, when you open a box of the vaccine product, there's a vial in it and there's a box. And it has a package insert. And this is an example of one that... Um, it's sealed and, you know, honestly, for the most part, we don't always read it because we've already looked at it and, and so it goes in the box with the, stays in the box. Um, but, so when I, we open this package insert, a typical package insert looks like this. So it has a great deal of information on it in terms of adverse reactions, um, the components of it, uh, and I'll let Dr. Gortler expand on sort of where this comes from in terms of the FDA. Uh, in other words, a lot of information, kind of like your terms of use for your Apple products. That's right. So there's a lot of information, but we do expect to see this because what, what in the world are we being asked to inject into our nation's children? And that's my question. So a few months ago, I, I looked at the package insert. I pulled it from the box of mRNA product. And, you know, it was sealed just like I'm showing you here. I, I unsealed the box that the entire thing came in. And then I pulled this out. And this is what it looks like. So I'd like to show this to you. It is, sorry about that. It's, um, it's blank. On Boom. Sides. There it, it is. It says intentionally blank on it. That's the data that pharmacists and physicians are basing on giving the injections outside of mainstream media recommendations. There it is right there. Here's a good question. Why didn't they just print that on a piece of paper the size of a postage stamp? Why all the theater of folding it up into a great big piece of paper like, like that? Why? That, that's, so as, as that's, that's, that's what's passing for informed consent. Right. So how am I to get informed consent to parents when I have, this is what I have. I have a government that's telling me that I have to say safe and effective. And if I don't, my license is at threat. Um, how am I to give informed consent to patients? We're seeing an uptick in myocarditis. We're seeing an uptick in adverse reactions. We have trusted these regulatory agencies. I have for my entire career up until now. Something is extremely wrong, and um, that is the anecdotal story that I have. Well, first of all, th thank you, Dr. Moon. Uh, next, I want to go to Dr. James Thorpe, an obstetrician gynecologist in St. Louis, Missouri, and is affiliated with uh, SSM Health St. Mary's Hospital, St. Louis. He received his medical degree from Wayne State University School of Medicine, has been in practice for more than 20 years, and Dr. Thorpe, what I ask you to do, we, we, we understand, being a gynecologist, how, how sensitive your patient population is, and you know, that, that is our future, all that type of thing. I really want you focusing, because time is short, on what you are seeing clinically in, in your patients and your newborns. Dr. Thorpe. Thank you, Senator Johnson. And thank you, God, for bringing me here to the Senate giving a voice to my patients. And who are my patients? Well, one of them was sitting right across from me, Ms. Brown, and it's heartbreaking. And she is one of my patients. My patients are women of reproductive age, pregnant women, and preborn babies. And what I've seen in my clinical practice has been a substantial, massive increase, unprecedented, in menstrual abnormalities uh, prior to pregnancy, a substantial increase in infertility. 
a substantial increase in miscarriage, fetal death, and fetal malformation. Um, we published many studies this year. Uh, over the last two years, uh, our latest study, which we've used from VAERS and CDC uh, data, and we compared the COVID-19 vaccines uh, over the last 15, 18 months with those of the influenza vaccine in pregnancy. And what we've seen is catastrophic. It's a danger signal like no others. I don't have time to review all of those problems, but what I will say is that the CDC and the FDA look for a two-fold increase as a danger signal, a two-fold increase. What our study showed was not two-fold increases, but 50, 100, or 1,000 increases in menstrual abnormalities, for example, almost 1,200-fold increase compared to the influenza vaccine. How about miscarriage? 58-fold increase in miscarriage from the COVID-19 vaccines compared to that of the influenza vaccine. And I could go on and on. Fetal death, 38-fold increase. This is what I've seen. This is what the data shows. My patients are the rate-limiting factor of future generations of the human race. I want to ask why the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, why the American College of OBGYN, and why the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, all of whom I've served in a professional capacity in an outstanding fashion my entire career, why they are pushing this lethal vaccine in risking the future of all humanity. That's Thank you, perfect. Senator. So, yes or no question. Do you, do you recommend a half a glass of wine to your pregnant patients? No. Um, I, I do want you very briefly cover, because I know you had done a, uh, a deep dive in peer-reviewed literature on actual case studies on adverse events. What, 1,366? You nailed it. Can you just quick, I mean, quick summarize it, because we need to get... Yes, I will. And, and indeed, uh, published earlier this year, um, a couple articles. Uh, uh, and in that article, I reviewed and studied 1,366 peer-reviewed medical journal publications in the world literature documenting death and destruction after the COVID-19 vaccine. And I can list all those. I categorically, I published them all in a journal. The Gazette of Medical Sciences published. 200 pages of the abstracts of the published literature. And compared with other vaccines, for a century, all the other vaccines, no comparison. What were the top three adverse events based on those published studies? Yeah, the, um, the, the, top, the top one, no surprise to Dr. McCullough, uh, was cardiac disease. And then we're looking at uh, thrombocytopenia and blood clot. Okay. So, Dr. Long, again, briefly, because we have to get to what could be causing this, tell us briefly what you've seen in your population of uh, the finest among us, the service members who've been forced to get the vaccine. Uh, again, we, we saw the, the macro, but clinically, what are you seeing in your clinical uh, experience? I've seen three strokes, transit ischemic attacks, massive clot to the spleen and liver, spinal tumors, brain tumors, uh, sarcoidosis lupus, 
um, cognitive impairment, myocarditis, pericarditis, avascular necrosis of the hip requiring total hip replacement um, without history of trauma or underlying vagalopathy, and I see a, a shocking um, suppression of the immune system that is pervasive in increased liver enzymes. Okay, so with what time we have left, we've got about 30 minutes left. Uh, I want to start first with uh, Dr. Cole. Um, during your initial presentation, I can't remember whether you mentioned this, I know you did yesterday, that uh, one of the mechanisms with the virus is, again, when, it, when you have that cleavage and the virus gets into the cell, it also sloughs off the spike protein. And can, can you talk, so I, I, want to, I want to talk about, you know, what is, we got long COVID, you know, you got the after effects of having COVID disease, which again, in, in individuals can be deadly, you know, highly serious, uh, but kind, kind of compare what the virus itself can do, because that, that's an awful lot of excuse here, by the way, is, well, that's just all, it's all long COVID. It's not a vaccine injury, it's long COVID. And again, I'm, I've got an open mind, but can you, can you describe that mechanism and, and why the spike pr protein uh, could be causing all of these things. Thank you, Senator. Yes, so in a, in a natural infection, as Dr. McCullough alluded to, the virus comes in through your eyes, your nose, your throat. You respond to all the proteins on the virus. You build a broad immune response to all parts of that virus. And then you make these IgA, secretory IgA antibodies, these little mops. The next time you're exposed to a similar virus, you quickly respond to it. But you also form a robust T-cell immune response. That's the Marines of your immune system. Everyone right now sitting here has 30 billion of those T-cells. That's the most important part of immunity, that immediate response. This spike protein, when we inject this gene into the body and start hijacking your cells to make it, these natural killer cells now look at your own cells, they poke a little hole in those cells, and then they throw a little hand grenade in and start blowing them up. So one, that's an autoimmune type attack. This spike protein can go anywhere in the body. I'll show a picture here in a minute beyond this slide, or I can show them now either way. This spike protein can go to, okay, here we have it. So we're talking about myocarditis. On the left-hand side there, in the laboratory, we can do special stains. Now, autopsies have been discouraged by our federal agencies and by Dr. Fauci. You can't find what you don't look for, but a handful of us around the world have been looking. And here on the left, all of that brown is expression of spike protein in the heart cells. If you're developing immunity to a natural infection, you, you want that protein and that reaction where it comes in and the next time that's where you're protected. But we're putting this into the body through the whole system. Now it is hijacking any and every organ it wants to. It's not just that this spike protein is dangerous. The lipid nanoparticle will go anywhere into the body. It was designed to carry chemotherapeutic agents to the brain. You don't want spike protein in your brain. So, that is spike protein in the heart, inducing inflammatory reactions. Remember, poking a hole, throwing hand grenades in? That's what your immune cells are now doing to your own cells. Uh, Dr. Hageman, European Journal of Immunology, it's called Antibody-Dependent Cellular Cytotoxicity. Peer-reviewed, published, we know this happens. 
And I like to say the cells don't lie. When we listen to these people who have gone through vaccine injury and are living these difficult lives, because that spike protein went other places, now the immune system is attacking the body as an enemy. And there are so many mechanisms, I'm not gonna give a pathology lecture, but does spike protein belong in the heart? Does spike protein belong in the brain? Does spike protein belong studying all the walls of the blood vessels, the miles and miles of the blood vessels in your body? No. And then it induces so many inflammatory responses. So in, in a very simple way, that's what's happening. And if I could show the next slide really quickly, the virus itself, when some spike broke off, obviously we knew it caused clotting. That big brown thing in the middle, this is from the lung of an individual that did not live. But see all the brown in the middle of that? This spike protein in the absence of the platelets will still clump and fold proteins. And everybody hears about these, you know, scary, unusual clots. Thankfully it's not happening to everybody. But are we testing people with clotting disorders before we ask them to get a shot? No. And even if they have a problem after one shot, we're telling them to get another one. We know this causes clotting. That is one big clot in a deceased person. See that little circle down there? That's the lining of the wall of a blood vessel. And all that brown, that whole vessel is lined with deposited spike protein after an injection. And I'll segue real quick. The next slide, please. See all those brown dots? That's brain. Does that spike protein, anybody heard of brain fog after the infection? Sure. What about brain fog after the injections? What about persistent brain fog or slowing of neurological function? Does this foreign protein with inflammatory and immune system toxicity belong within the neurons of our brain? Thank you. So let me ask the layman's question here. So you get the injection, and it was supposed to stay in the muscle, but it's not. So, it's, so this, these nanolipid particles with the encapsulated mRNA are being distributed all over the body. And so let's talk about the heart. So they attach to the heart muscle, and they put their little payload in there. And so it's the, the cells of the heart muscle that then produce the spike protein, which then the body's immune system, the T cells, attack. And that's happening over and over again in different areas of the body, uh, producing different, I guess, outcomes, different symptoms, different pathologies. But that, that's the basic mechanism here. And, that, and again, that's why it was such an important point to make that we were told that it was going to stay in the arm. By the way, the people who developed this knew it wouldn't, correct? correct. Is, there, is there any way that the people who developed this vaccine could credibly think that by encapsulating these, again, this, this nanolipid part that is designed to permeate difficult permeate barriers. Plus they knew it because we know from the FOIA request of the Japanese regulators, they knew that by distribution of the nanolipid particle went all, all over the bodies of mice. They didn't test, didn't test it in human beings, but they tested mice and then kept it secret until a FOIA request. I mean, Dr. Malone, you wanted to? Um, just to clarify, in the literature and in this field, there was a belief system that empirically different chemical structures of the positively charged lipids would cause the particles to selectively target different organs. 
that was all based on um, rodent research. The history in this field and in gene therapy has been that rodents are a very poor model of humans. Um, but that was the basis for that hope. As you point out, the data from, it's not just the Japanese, we now know um, from all of these documents that have been forced to be disclosed, that uh, the data clearly demonstrated in the animal model that the encoded protein went everywhere. And my friends in the regulatory world, which I consider colleagues, um, will tell you that the norm is that one tests the active product, the active ingredient. And in this case, what the agency allowed the pharmaceutical industry to do was to use data that didn't actually test complexes expressing spike protein. They tested complexes expressing luciferase, a firefly protein, and then they used the least sensitive method to detect the presence of that protein, whole body imaging. Um, and so those shocking images of luciferase being expressed all over in the mouse's body, or the rat's body, are actually a gross underestimate of the distribution of expression and furthermore, from a regulatory standpoint, at best should have been preliminary data. But again, um, so, so again. Should have not just focused on luciferase, should have actually used the spike protein. So the experts, the, the people in the pharmaceutical companies, the regulators looking at this, they should have known that this was going to biodistribute all over the body. And they actually had studies that showed it would, at least in a mouse. So they knew that. And even if they didn't, they should have asked the question. Now, now may, may, maybe they didn't know this. What would what, what they, they known about the toxicity of the spike protein? I know I was, I was talking to doctors in October of 2020 who knew that would be toxic to the body. Did our pharmaceutical company uh, CEOs, did, did our regulators understand that as well? Again, this is kind of getting back to Senator Marshall's point. What do they know and when they know it? There was an active campaign to suppress um, anyone, including myself and my colleagues, from saying the words that Spike was a toxin. When I said those words in the Brett Weinstein Dark Horse podcast with Steve Kirsch, I was immediately attacked. Um, and yet the data back then was clearly self-evident. Um, there's one other key thing. When, when you say back when, when, when was back when? This was uh, fall of 2021, as I recall. Okay, so again, I'm talking to people in fall of 20. Yeah. That so that's that's basically. I mean, beside that, themselves, actually, that his colleagues would have done something yeah. like this. So yeah, the yeah, use yeah. of the spike protein was based on um, the use of it in preceding vaccine development efforts for MERS and SARS-1. I want to make the point that Ralph Barrick at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, published in 1992 that beta coronaviruses given in high doses to animals would cause myocarditis. And the pathogenic mechanism was the spike protein. What I'm seeing clinically is now patients have taken the vaccine and they've had COVID and they've taken the vaccine and now it's all mixed and there's multiple exposures. The more exposures there are, in my estimation, there's greater risks of myocarditis and recurrent myocarditis and blood clots and more blood clots. 
And the FDA and the manufacturers strictly excluded COVID-recovered patients from the clinical trials because of that fact. And so to allow them and then ultimately mandate them, people who have recovered from COVID, to take the vaccines, we've compounded these side effects greatly. So again, I, again, I'm just trying to describe this in layman's terms, okay? So the vaccine attaches to, for example, the heart cell, and now the body's attacking it. That would cause the inflammation, correct? Is that, is that what caused the myocarditis? It's not just one thing. I mean, it, it is toxic. It's a toxin in multiple. It goes through different receptors. It does it directly. It causes it different cells. Um, the gatekeeper for everything is really the endothelial cell. It starts a whole cascade of inflammation that brings in white cells, a mixed variety. So what we see in autopsy, there we're seeing neutrophils where we would expect only to see lymphocytes. I know this is very complex, but that's what we see. It's a mixed picture. So everything is getting inflamed. And we don't know why one person gets it over another, but way too many people are getting this. We don't see this with the flu vaccine. We don't see anything like this with the flu vaccine. It's quick, because it's you know, again, the fact that mRNA, the, the, the synthetic, it's, it's knocked around the body for quite some time. I mean, could it enter cells or is it inert? Can, can I, can I, um, can I reframe this just a little bit? And yes, it appears to be very long lived. The paper that I'd like to cite in that context and about what I'm going to say as a first author of Roltgen, it was published in Cell January 24th, 2022 from a group at Stanford, a fairly large group. So this is the premier journal in one of the premier labs. And they, this is not cell culture based or hypothetical animal research. This is drawing blood and sampling lymph nodes from humans that have received the vaccine. One of the key criticisms that um, folks make, physicians, um, is, well, the virus causes myocarditis. The virus expresses spike protein. What's the difference between the virus and the vaccine? Why should we be seeing more of these problems with the vaccine? Um, as was mentioned by uh, Dr. Lindsay earlier, um, the pharmacokinetics and the um, uh, pharmacodistribution studies were not done. Where it goes, how long it lasts, how much. But this paper that finally came out January 24th, 2022, clearly demonstrates that the level of spike protein produced from the vaccine is significantly higher than the levels that are observed with the natural infection. Furthermore, as Peter has spoken about mucosal immunology, um, in the normal infection process of the nasopharynx, your, your face, when you get infected, you have a, a, this infection starts gradually. You have more and more spike gradually building up as the immune system kicks in and, and controls it. In the case, so you have a curve that kind of goes like that. In the case of the vaccine, you have a curve that goes like this. You get a whole lot of protein produced circulating in the body, and then it gradually tapers. It's very different, and it's very much more. So when you see these stains that Ryan's showing you, one of the things they reflect is the levels of spike protein, and spike is a toxin, are significantly higher with the vaccine product than they are with the infection over. So let me quick ask you, why did the regulators in Denmark and uh, where else did they uh, 
Where's the other country? UK. UK. Uh, no, I mean, they, they actually stopped administering it to people under 30 and under 50. Which, which two countries are that? What, what, what? Germany. 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 So what were they seeing in the data? Too much harm. Just Too much harm. And Just what Ed, what Ed Dowd was talking about. The, the Moderna, you know, they saw they saw a dose response. If you think about it, it has three times as much um, uh, genetic material in it as we think. That's what it's described well, as. Because I was going to next go to the Moderna with 100 milliliters versus Pfizer with 30. Yeah, well, are, are we, I mean, we see, are we see a difference there clinically. We see it consistently in myocarditis data that it's almost always three times as much. And then, but what also was concerning in the Scandinavian data, which I was sharing with you, is that when you start mixing them, that even went higher. So if you give like, we're going to give two, you know, you're going to get a Pfizer and then a Moderna or something like that, that data was more concerning. The, the odds ratios were higher in those. So, And it's important to note that as that was a seminal paper by Dr. Roltgen from Stanford. The real question to ask is when does the body with the synthetic RNA stop making spike protein and when is it eventually fully dissolved? And the answer is we don't know. So again, I don't that, know that, that was one of my points that. at the onset. Nobody knows that. There's so much we don't know. And when you don't know a whole lot, don't, don't you exercise some caution? To me, that, that, that seems the most, you know, the egregious uh, uh, problem here is the fact that they didn't use caution. They were just, the, the hubris was grotesque here. But Senator, uh, if I could add something real, very briefly. I, I know we're, we're running short on time, but I, I, I did notice that there actually is, a, despite what the Dr. Mooney said, there is actually a label online for this drug now, but it was released in uh, July of this year. But, that, that's, but of course, the majority of the doses that were given by healthcare practitioners were given away before there was ever a, a, a package insert. And then it does have a warning in there for myocarditis, but there's nothing in there where it says it's temporally related, saying, uh, because we, we haven't characterized the half-life. And I have a question for uh, Dr. Malone about the same in just a moment. But normally, if there were a warning, it should say, do not exercise for and then they would insert a period of time, insert a half-life. But uh, so, so, so Robert, is there a way to calculate the half-life of gene therapy or, or not? Or is it permanently embedded? Um, uh, as, as Dr. Cole was mentioning, this Rolkin paper um, tested the longevity of the RNA in lymph node biopsies from vaccine recipients in the deltoids. So the jab goes here, they put a fine needle in the lymph nodes there, they draw it some cells, they say, is there RNA? They test for 60 days. The RNA signal is still detected at 60 days. They didn't test longer than that. Clearly the RNA signal drops significantly during those 60 days. Those are the data. Um, so that demonstrates that, yes, sir, um, if this study was done as a pharmacokinetic study using this technology and these methods, one could derive the half-life for both the uh, expressed spike protein in circulation, as these investigators did, and would could derive the half-life of the synthetic RNA. But is that the immunologic data for 60 days or like the no, presence no, of the spike no, this protein? Is, this is persistent mRNA and persistent spike protein. 
So thank you. Dr. Moon, real quick. Thank you. I, you know, as a pediatrician, I have to speak to the health of our nation's children. And um, we are being asked to inject this product into our nation's kids who have essentially a 0% risk of harm. Um, when I bring up with families that other reputable countries have banned this, they're stunned. They haven't heard this from our mainstream media. And um, I do think we need to pause for a second and distress how relevant that is. Other nations have banned this product because it's too dangerous for younger people. What are we doing? Well, let's face it, the, the main reason we talked about this yesterday, that the main reason for this event today was, first of all, to provide information that the American public deserves to know, that they're not being told, but anything we could do to prevent further harm. I mean, it's, it's just that simple. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here going, you know, I don't want to scare the you-know-what out of people. I, I don't. I, none of us do, okay? But they need to have that information. Dr. Thorpe. I just wanted to point out how oh, important I think that uh, comments are. Birth rates all over the world are plummeting to her point. The other point with regard to the confusion and the masquerading, if you will, of the vaccine effects from COVID-19 itself, I can assure you that in my experience, it didn't happen, and I can show you data. In 2020, when we had the massive assault with COVID-19, we didn't have an increase in stillbirth. That stillbirth rate actually dropped dropped down to 5.73 from about 5.83 per thousand births, which was the aggregate of the three prior years. So again, in your field, you didn't see that impact in terms of health outcomes no. COVID from the disease? It only, only until the vaccine was rolled out? That's correct. In 2020, the massive assault of COVID-19 and everybody, including my pregnant woman, I did not see this rise. The rise was not seen until after the vaccine. And I have vital statistics of our national, uh, vital statistics to prove that. Sir, yeah. I, I would like to make this point for anyone who is considering getting their children vaccinated. Um, we've had a hard lesson learned. We've had soldiers who have gotten vaccinated, who've been destroyed. You've heard victims up here who've been destroyed by this vaccine. An EUA product means you have no legal recourse. You could give that vaccine to your child, they could drop dead the next day or end up in a wheelchair like Maddie Gray. And you have no ability to sue the pharmaceutical companies, just like my soldiers. They said it was FDA approved, yet they have not produced any FDA approved vaccines with cons uh, uh, corresponding lot numbers. And it is the lot number off of that vial. It doesn't matter if the EUA product and the FDA approved product have exactly the same ingredients in that vial. It is the lot number that corresponds to either an EUA product or an FDA approved product that gives you the ability to uh, uh, legal recourse. And once this vaccine was put on the childhood uh, vaccine schedule, the pharmaceutical companies have complete and permanent indemnity from legal recourse um, should anything happen to you or your children. And our soldiers have been forced to take an EUA product, even though it is illegal, 
to mandate service members be injected with an EUA product. So, so we have five minutes left. I mean, what I really wanted to do in this segment, and I don't, really don't think it's necessary, is I kind of wanted to explore the, you know, myocarditis, the clotting, the, you know, what's happening in, in women's health, that type of thing. I, I think we kind of get the gist of why this could be a c concern, okay? The, the other two points that, that we wanted to cover, and again, we don't really have time, but I'll, I'll just throw them out there for discussion, is, is the fact that we do need a pretty detailed list of what research needs to be done. I mean, we kind of talked about what should have been done and wasn't, but I mean, now at this point, moving forward, it's like there are things that we need to have the answers on, correct? I mean, there's research that needs to be done. There's data that the CDC, FDA, NIA should have been gathering that they automate transparent so that medical experts can kind of go through this and, and understand what may be happening here. Okay, there, there's so much that, that we, we haven't uh, talked about. Another, another, and then I'll, again, with what closing minutes we have here, we did also want to discuss what the plans are for the mRNA platform. Because it's, it's not just, they're not talking about just using it at one time use here. They've got big plans for this. So I guess that I think does need to be discussed because it's one of the reasons we're, we're here today saying you know, we need this information so that we can prevent future harm. But we kind of need to understand that. So somebody can, can call it. Just quickly, I, I think it has to be said to the pathway to, to prevent any more harm is all the vaccines need to be pulled off the market and withdrawn. That needs to happen immediately. All the vaccine mandates should be dropped immediately. We need requests for applications and immediate funding for vaccine injury centers of excellence across the United States for screening, detection, uh, diagnosis, prognosis, and management. Uh, we need a massive shift in our healthcare system towards managing now this large number of vaccine injured people. What's at stake here is death. And the deaths that were reported by Mr. Dowd and, and others the deaths on a more probable than not basis that are occurring in someone who have taken a vaccine are due to the vaccine and the autopsy studies show it. It's alarming to save American lives now, these vaccines need to be pulled off the market. Yeah, that's what should be done. And I agree, mRNA vaccines should be done, but they still, the problem is they still have the regulatory approval for something which no longer, which is extinct. And actually the FDA is doing the opposite. Um, they're actually using this sort of accelerated pathway uh, to, to use some, something called the proposed future framework to, to have accelerated approval of drugs without the sacrosanct um, ability to uh, have long-term safety studies, etc. But even if there were, the FDA will never take it off the market because their logic is it's still effective for the wild type the Corona-19 virus, again, which doesn't exist. First of all, here's, here's one of the main reasons is if they pull it, that's admitting they were wrong and they can't afford to admit they're wrong. Dr. Malone, very quickly. There's a long history of congressionally directed appropriations for research and development. It is within your power and there are established mechanisms to allow you to specifically appropriate for this purpose. Have, have, have you seen how broken our appropriation process is? We'll be witnessing that over the next couple of weeks. Second point, um, second point is um, 
that they're currently enrolling 50 different clinical trials on other new mRNA vaccines. 200 clinical trials are listed in clinicaltrials.gov for mRNA-based vaccines and medicines. And the structure that's been created under the pathway that was just discussed is that these data that have been generated with this product, which we've all agreed are inadequate, are now being grandfathered and essentially enabling a functional monopoly for Pfizer, Moderna, and BioNTech to deploy this technology for virtually any purpose. Um, and because those data are predicated on what we currently have, and they're grandfathering this in for the new products, it creates a situation where they have a potential permanent monopoly on the application of this technology for the foreseeable future. Over. That's what trying to get this information on. Dr. Cole, quickly, 30 seconds. Really quickly. Human cells were meant to make human proteins. A lipid nanoparticle plus a gene sequence, whether it be for coronavirus, influenza, RSV, whatever the virus may be, human cells were meant to make human proteins. The lipid nanoparticles are toxic. Obviously, the spike protein from this is toxic. But we cannot afford to alter the immune system of humanity going forward. This is not a good platform. This is not good science. Thank you. So I seem about ready to pull the plug on this thing. So again, I want to thank everybody for coming here. Uh, I think because we focused this, we did a pretty good job of covering what material I wanted to cover. I mean, there's again, there's so much complexity. There's so much that we could still talk about. But I think we covered this subject. I would ask anybody in the audience, you know, this is going to be available. Uh, please share it broadly, widely. Uh, people need to see this. And again, um, this wasn't meant to disturb people. This wasn't meant to scare people. Um, this was meant to inform people. So I, I would ask, because I've seen, I've seen how those individuals who've been telling the truth have been persecuted, the, the price they've paid. Please do not shoot the messenger. So God bless all of you. Have a very Merry Christmas.